Well, we invite ourselves into God's presence with this scripture of Palm Sunday, which we'll be talking about later on in the teaching. And the children are going to process in on Palm Sunday, waving palms, the really little children. So I think if we get this figured out right, we'll all start clapping for them, try not to scare them. But here's the scripture for the day. It's out of Mark chapter 11, if you want to open your Bible to it or pull it up on your phone or whatever. Mark chapter 11. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. And as they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, and they told what Jesus had said. They allowed them to take it. Verse 7. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, and now I need you to join me. Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the heaven. Well, let us continue in worship as we recite the Apostles' Creed together, which will be very important for this morning because we're going to explain the heart of this thing in a very studious time. Join me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, everyone, uh, I said that as we were reciting the Apostles' Creed together that we're going to try and explain it, and uh, it's another thick week, and um, I gave you a study notes, cheat sheet thing, something to fill in, if, for, if nothing else, to keep you entertained, but wait, I'm taking it one step further, right here. Levels of understanding Pastor Dan Wilburn this morning. I've written my own grade card. Please don't turn it in. I have a fragile ego. It says here, say, like, say, hey, that makes me think, and then dot, dot, dot. And then, yay, like, yay, I vote yay. Uh, I totally get it and understand. Or, nay, no, I totally disagree. You're wrong. Eh? What are you saying? I have no idea the gobbledygook you're spewing. Or may. <clears throat> we ha- I saw a few young people doing the m- may uh, first service. It was quite the yawn. So anyway, um, let's see how this goes. We've already read the scripture for the day. 
It ends there in Mark chapter 11 with the words, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. It's taken from Psalm 118. It's the Hallel, which means uh, praise God. And uh, the words Hosanna, this is your first blanks to fill in, by the way. Hosanna means save us. Here comes Jesus riding in on a donkey. And all the crowds outside of Jerusalem are crying out, God has come to save us. Salvation is near. It is here. It's in that man, Jesus Christ, riding on the donkey. And you're like, well, why is he riding on a donkey? Because in uh, Hebrew history and in their tradition, or even in that part of the Middle East and during that time 2,000 years ago, the king always rode in on a donkey. And that was the symbol of their, their royalty. So it's a symbol, it's a royal metaphor for anybody who rides in on a donkey like this, especially with people laying down cloaks and palm branches. It says the king is entering the city. Oh, he's not just entering any city, he's entering Jerusalem, the former capital that David created in the year 1000 B.C. And his son Solomon continued in the year 931. The glory days are coming back when Israel will be top nation. It'll be the golden era again because it's been so bad for the last 900 years. But finally, salvation, relief is going to come. The other nations, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and now the Romans are all going to, they're all going to go away. The irony is thick, everyone, that on the first day of the week, Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, Jesus rides in on the symbolic, traditional symbol of the king, the donkey. It's so important that all four gospel writers record it. I put it there in the microprint right below the word Hosanna. All four gospels. You know how rare it is that all four, all four gospels recount the same story? That's how important it is. They all, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all knew exactly how important this was. That the king was riding into Jerusalem. Very important historically. The irony is thick because on the first day of the week, the king is riding in. And on the last day, well, the Friday, the second to last day of the week, will be Jesus' crucifixion. And once again, instead of Hosanna, here comes the king. It will be the words by the guards and the centurions mocking and beating Jesus, saying, so you think you're king, huh? Prophesy. And then they punch him in the face. They smash a crown of thorns on his head. Put a purple robe on him, because purple is the color of royalty, as you know. That's why the color on the cross is purple. The irony's thick. Five days is all it took to go from here comes the king to so you're calling yourself a king, huh? King of the Jews. So this morning, I want to ask a very obvious, appropriate question, and it's, a, it's an academic question. It's a heavy question, and that's why I'm wearing the tweed jacket, and you've got study notes. It's professor morning. Once again, I did this last week, and so we only do this a few times. We've got more isms coming at you this morning. We've got a year's worth of isms coming at you. We've got, we got pantheism. We've got deism. We've got, we got a lot of isms coming at you. So you'll have your full of it, and then we'll go back to being a little bit more normal. Next week with Easter. 
I want to ask the most appropriate, obvious question. Is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? It's just the most obvious question sitting here as Jesus is writing in his king as Messiah. Is that the same as God? What do we mean by God? The common Jews of Jesus' day thought Jesus was the long-expected Messiah king. That much is clear because all four gospel writers record it. But is that the same as God, the way we understand it now, 2,000 years later? Is Jesus divine? Because the church's teaching and what designates you as a Christian is that those who do not believe Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, God the Father, are considered heretics by the church for over 1,700 years. So here on this Palm Sunday, when the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, save us, it is critical that we tighten up and we understand what we mean when we're saying that we're Christians. Because the funny thing is, is so many of us who sit around and say, like, yeah, that Apostles' Creed, that thing's like dry as dirt. I don't get it at all. Your eternal destiny is hanging on it, <laughs> on how you believe it or don't believe in it. It's that important. This question of Jesus being equal to God, it started just 100 years after Jesus, after his resurrection. And it's been confusing everyone ever since. It's still in debate today. It's still a head-scratcher for us. You don't have to go far back just to 1995 to get Joan Osborne's song, you know, What If God Were One of Us, just a slob like one of us, just a, a guy on a bus trying to, a stranger on a bus trying to find his way home. And we'll explore, actually, the philosophy behind that near the end here. Well, to make clear this thing and to get into this thing, allow me to introduce you to a man named Arius. Arius. He is a Christian presbyter, a leader, one of the key leaders. He is born in Libya in 250 in the Common Era, A.D., 250 A.D. He ministers as a, uh, a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt of the time, around 300 And he died in 336 A.D. Arius, this is going to get technical here, listen close. Arius believed that God the Father, Arius believed that God the Father's divinity was over the Son. The Son Jesus. God is over the Son, not equal or the same. This was Arius' teaching. Arius believed Jesus had a beginning. Like, well, yeah, he was born. But not according to John in the Gospels and not according to the entire Christian tradition and Paul and everything. They believe Jesus, the Word, was always with God and was God, which we'll quote here in a second. But Arius uses this famous quote, John 3.16, that famous verse, famous for the rainbow wig, you know, in the end zone, right? John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, and that's the key word, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Arius used that word begotten, I think it's on the sheet here, to to validate his claim that, that Jesus was created and therefore is under 
the God, the Father. Therefore, Arius says, because of that verse, the Son has a beginning. Now, Arius used other verses too. There's actually bunches of them on there, and I even gave you a couple there in some more microprint. What, what you're going to find, by the way, anytime you're dealing with any sort of heresy on this, everybody uses the same verses, and they argue them and interpret them differently. And we all know, of course, that a heresy is taking one slice of the pie and making it the whole pie. It's not some wild new thing. It's always something that's true, but you make that the whole truth. That's exactly the sort of thing that's going on here, and we even said that last week when we talked about Gnosticism. So he takes this begotten word, and he interprets it differently, saying that the Son then, therefore, is created, and therefore is below. However, Arius differs then from the very beginning of John's gospel, the same place where John 3.16 is, just three chapters earlier, the very first verse says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Not a God, but God. He was in the beginning with God. Not after the beginning, but at the beginning. All things came into being through Him, and without Him, not one thing came into being. You can hear the echo of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the, you know, the heavens, I mean, all that sort of thing. It's very, very intentional on the part of John, the gospel writer, that Jesus is seen with God. The first church understood Jesus as being God in the beginning, not created later, but Arius demanded that the God the Father be supreme over anything else and that the Son of God should be regarded as the very, very, this is what Arius says, he's the very, 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 very first created thing. Before the universe was created or anything like that, Arius says, the Son was created. God, therefore, does not create anything himself. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all of that sort of thing, it's actually the Son, Arius says. Like, okay, you can see how he's kind of fitting the Son into God, but there's still God above the Son. So Arius argues that everything's created by the sun. Now, Arius, you're like, well, how did this guy get much traction? I mean, why did everybody think this was something? Arius, well, one, because of the obvious thing is like, you have a man and we're saying that he's God. Like, that's, that's a stretch. And yes, it is. It's a stretch for us today, which I'll explain in a little bit. Arius gained, gained, however, a huge following in northern Africa and soon all around the Roman Empire, even though the Christians were being persecuted at that time. But soon enough, all over the Roman Empire, everybody loved Arius. This was a huge deal. This wasn't just some sort of little backwater thing in Alexandria, you know, Egypt. This was a big deal going on, and everyone was believing it. And Jesus was being demoted. The reason why it worked is because Arius, although he's a very kind, moral, compassionate man, he was not an evil guy. He wasn't trying to destroy Christianity. He was trying to get things right. But Arius's great asset was that he, could, he was great at writing little songs, like children's songs. He could write little ditties and sing song verses. And so illiterate people, Christians, all over the Mediterranean, all over the Roman Empire, learned his little songs that were actually teaching them how to understand that Jesus was less than God. And as the old quote goes, you can write the speeches, but let me write the anthems, right? It's not the speeches, folks. It's all about the songs. And if you can write the songs, everyone's going to buy it. 
Who, who here can quote the Constitution? Not too many, but you give me a Taylor Swift lyric. Oh, yeah, man, all over the place. That's the way it works. Pretty soon, everybody was singing his tune. Finally, this thing had come to a head, and Roman Emperor Constantine called the very first council of the church. Constantine, you know, the one who uh, embraced Christianity in 314 A.D., called the very first council of the church about 10 years later in 325 in a city called Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed is the same thing, just about. And that, what you read, is exactly what Constantine came up with, and they put Arius on trial and had him read his teachings and then they condemned him. Actually, I'll tell you the truth, most of the bishops that were there, and by the way, back then the bishops didn't have fancy hats and cool robes. They were all just kind of a bunch of normal people, you know. They, all, they really liked Arius. They thought he was actually right. But after they heard him read his stuff, they're all like, you're not right, Arius. And so Constantine condemned him. And the church said, that's not what we believe. And they wrote the Apostles' Creed and got that firmed up. Arius flees to Palestine because he didn't want to put up with the hassle. Later on, by the way, Constantine kind of lightens up on him, and he's allowed to come back. And by the way, I also put at the very top of the page, this word Arian and Arianism is not to be confused with Adolf Hitler's 1936 Nazi Germany or white supremacy or anything like that. It's the same word. They have no relationship to one another. And if you have deeper questions about how they would actually use the same word, I'm going to throw Pastor Garrett Leahy under the bus and say, go talk to him. (laughs) He loves that sort of thing. So the question then, you know, it has to be asked, like, well, well, are we in danger of this heresy today? Is this still going on? I mean, I don't know much about the Apostles' Creed. I mean, it sounds right. I guess it's all good. But is this going on or what's going on? Is this still going on around here? We can still find Arianism today. Probably, and nobody's going to be exactly like Arius anymore, but probably the closest thing you can find in our time is the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses, I remember back in my 20s when I was all fire and brimstone and ready to argue, and I got a stack of books in my hand and all this, and I'd run into Jehovah's Witnesses. They're coming to my door. It's like, okay, man, let's go at it. So, you know, so it was going to be all-out warfare, and, uh, and it was all about the Greek. Of course, we're throwing the Greek stuff around. And so you had the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are probably the closest thing. They would say that the Son is created and that uh, created by the Father, and so therefore is not equal with Him. Another group is the Unitarians. Unity Village over here are good friends and so forth, and people like them. I know they're not all all the same, but nonetheless, they claim that Jesus is not God. I remember our very first service, October 21st, 1996, and uh, we had sent out 17,000 pieces of mail to Lee Summit and all around, and so we were trying to get a crowd to come to start the church. And uh, back in those days, that's when you mailed stuff out to start things. People actually, you know, opened the mail. And, um, and so I, I could tell from some phone calls that I'd gotten for a couple of weeks that a lot of people were asking, so are you guys Unitarian? I'm like, no, we're not Unitarian. How'd you get that? And I kind of read the flyer like, yeah, we don't really talk much about Jesus in this thing. So, hmm, that's interesting. So um, a little oversight. Nonetheless, I'm, I, so I made it an intention. This is kind of devious stuff. I intentionally, in the very first sermon that I preached at Lakeland, 
I intentionally said the words, Jesus is Lord, quoting right out of Corinthians. An audible gasp went up in the room, like, <gasps> you're kidding me. Jesus is Lord. And I'm like, I think I found the Unitarians in the room. We were less of a crowd the next week, let's just say. Uh, another group that still embraces, and let's just say, a very, well, it's not quite Arianism, is the Latter-day Saints. And, uh, and uh, they embrace some principles of Arianism, uh, at least enough to not to qualify, uh, to not qualify that all of Christianity does not consider them Christian. And I know this is a controversial thing, especially given our proximity to Independence, Missouri, and the RLDS, and Joseph Smith, and the Mormons, and all this sort of thing. If you said this, you know, in Maine, everybody would be like, what's an RLDS? But around here, it's a big deal. And I know that's not very popular, and a lot of you are from the RLDS, and Mormons, and so forth. And uh, not that they're the same. I know, I know. Sorry, I'm going to get in battles going. But, uh, but nonetheless, despite the fact and the claims that it's Christian, it is not, and Christianity does not embrace them as the Christian faith. Joseph Smith taught that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three separate entities, three gods, and that God and Jesus both have bodies and flesh of flesh and bone. God has a body of flesh and bone. So Mormonism may not be Arianism exactly, but it's clearly not Trinitarian, like the Apostles' Creed says. That is to say, they do not believe in the Trinity the way Christianity believes in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the way the Apostles' Creed and the way those first Christians understood Jesus. So what about the Trinity? (laughs) Yes, we're going there. How shall we think about God as one and yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I think we get into trouble Most quickly, in thinking about the Trinity, we get into trouble thinking about God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we try and make it into a math equation. We split God into three and then try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. It does not work. Our problem is is that we're doing math with the transcendent God. And I think it's on the sheet. It says, it's a mistake to think numerically about God. You'll get into trouble every time. I've always thought it a problem when we split something into three and then try and put it back into one. You're better off saying God is one. Then how do we talk about God? Our big mistake is to think numerically Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three separate beings. That's also on the sheet. Not three separate beings. That would be the mistake of uh, Mormonism, Joseph Smith in particular. But God is one. But we can think of God as three different relations or relationships. God is three different relationships. God the one is, is, can be seen in three different relationships. And even this gets a little difficult. The attempt to make this clear, uh, in an attempt to make this clear, here's the way, and all, all illustrations, as you probably well know, if you've ever tried to explain a training to anybody, are extremely inadequate. But here's some. Think of it relationally. I am Dan. Yes, I am. But I have three different relationships. I am a son of John and Margaret. I am a husband of Lori. And I am a father of Mia and Hudson. Have I been chopped into three different pieces? Please don't try this with me. Have I been chopped into three and then been put back together? 
No, but relationally, I am viewed and have a different relationship to all three, my parents, my wife, and my children. Okay, don't like that illustration? Here's one that gets used oftentimes. Think about the sun. Yes, that great big huge, what is it, hydrogen just burning up there 93 million miles away or whatever it is, right? The sun, it's one, right? But, like I saw so beautifully this morning driving past Legacy Park this morning, the sun was coming through the snow clouds, you know, those low, violent-looking clouds after the snow, and the sunbeams were coming through, and there's, so the sun, the one sun, has sunbeams, then if the sun's on your skin, there's the warmth. That's a different sensation or relationship that you have with the sun. And then there's also then the light, the reflected light that hits your, you know, ocular nerve, and you see it differently. One sun, but three different relationships, you could say. The sunbeams, the warmth, and then the reflected light. I didn't think it worked that well either, but it's a good try, isn't it? As we know, all these illustrations of the Trinity fall short. It's difficult to describe God. We don't even know God. I know I get in trouble around here every time I say that, but you don't know God's favorite color. We don't know very much about God. We have a Bible that tells us about God, and if you want to rummage around in the other world religions, you might find out a few more things about God, but none more clearly than what you'll find in that thick black book we call the Bible. It's a very unique picture of God, and that's about all we know about God. I personally think it's a very beautiful picture of God. You see, everyone, belief in God is a matter of faith. And by the way, disbelief in God is a matter of faith. I'll say it again. Belief or disbelief in God is a matter of faith. In our day and age, we have been so influenced by science and scientism that we break God down in the laboratory and we say, well, there is no God. And even in that, we fail to recognize the the fact that scientific theory or scientific practice itself is never certain, is it? You experiment, you create a hypothesis, you run the experiment, you come to conclusions, and you test it against other things. It never comes to an answer. You kind of get, you know, certain about gravity is probably real, but we don't know for sure. Doesn't science say that you never come to the full faith or belief? It's based on unbelief or doubting or critical methodology. It always takes faith, everyone. Here's how the Bible, the Hebrews, the ancient Jews understood God. The very first creed comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the very first verses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it is called the Shema. Shema in Hebrew means hear, like listen. The Shema, and I'll read you the full text. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. I'm going to read that again because that is the Shema itself. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. 
These words which I am commanding you today, Moses says, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them on a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. In other words, this should be everywhere. Write it on the back of your eyelids. This is what we believe. This is who we are. And who are we? Who are we? It is our God. The one God is our Lord. Our God. That word our is the most important word in the Shema. Listen closely and you'll notice there is nothing here about what is God's substance or numeric value or relationships even except for the relationship that God has to the Jews. Our God. Notice the Hebrews do not drag God into a science lab and attempt to dissect him, if they even could, so many years ago. Neither do the Hebrews drag God into a philosophical debate like Arius had to because of his Greek influence. What do we hear if we listen closely? We hear relationship. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Our God, the one God, the God, that God is our Lord, our master, our salvation. No other world religion has a personal God, a relational God. Not Hinduism. It's hard to even understand Hinduism. Hinduism has millions of gods, by the way, and it's hard with even in Hinduism to understand what's going on. I'm not critiquing it that way. I'm just saying within Hinduism, they say, yeah, it's really hard. Everybody has their different beliefs. Not Buddhism, which seeks to be free from desire. Not Islam, which seeks obedience and submission to Allah. Only the Jews have a relational God. And that's why God, as a man riding on a donkey colt, makes sense to the Jews to throw their cloaks and the palm branches down on the ground in front of him and cry out, Salvation has come! Hosanna! God is saving us! It's a personal salvation, so to speak. God with us. Relational. Now, at this point, I'm, going to, I'm about to state something that I, that I think you're going to take offense at. And I'm doing it intentionally. We do not believe in this God this, these days. During this time in history, we do not believe in that God. That's right. The vast majority of American Christians do not believe in Jesus as God. They think they do, but they do not. It isn't Jesus' fault. It's that their understanding of God is wrong. You see, what most Christians these days, what we carry around as baggage, most Christians, and especially atheists, what they mean by God is the God of 18th century enlightenment. Oh yes, now you're free to Google at will. Google the enlightenment and start reading. I'm not kidding, actually. Enlightenment deism. That was their thoughts of God. About the time of Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, both not Christian, by the way, not the way we would understand it. About that time, 
The Enlightenment believed that God in deism, it's called deism, that deism believed that God was this far off, detached, impersonal being that somehow was responsible as prime mover for creating the universe. Starting to sound familiar from your high school classes? The deist God is remote, inaccessible, certainly not relational or involved in the daily operation of the universe, the world, and people's lives. The deist God does not care about your pain. The deist God does not not care about justice. The deist God has no interest in the daily affairs of anything. Cry out to this God and your prayer will bounce off the ceiling. The deist God has no sense of anything that is personal. This is the great clockmaker who constructed the parts of the clock, put the thing together, wound it up, and left. The parts of the clock these days are gravity, evolution, quantum physics, black holes, bosons, and on and on and on. Each just a cog in the great machine of the deist God. Set in motion by a nameless, faceless, distant, prime mover bureaucrat. This is the God that most people believe in today, including Christians. And it is right there on why we cannot understand the Trinity. Am I right? Is this the God that we all buy into? You don't like the deist God? You say, well, that's not me. Then let me offer up the other end of the spectrum as the pendulum swings. Pantheism. There's another ism for you. Start checking them off. You don't like the deist God. The other extreme is the pantheist spirit God. This is the native naturalist God that's so popular these days. The God that is flowing in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air, Gladriel. This is the God of pantheism. Pan means everywhere or everything. It means pan, like Pan America. This this God is not distinct or separate from the earth or the air or the water or any other part of created thing. Yea, it is not even distinct from you because you are a part of the created order as well. So therefore, you are God. At this point, since God is everywhere, we too make up a part of the material world. The material world and universe is God, according to pantheism. And if we are God then we have the authority to make up whatever we want. We can make up any spirituality or belief that we feel like. And that's what happens, whether it's channeling, reincarnation, the great cycle of life, even feng shui, or whatever you feel like coming up with. It's your spirituality and your religion. You're writing your own creed. And it's everything spiritual and divine. May the force be with you, and Kenobi is his prophet. You understand where this is coming from? I remember the survey from a decade ago or so that in Great Britain, the fourth religion most popular after Christianity, Judaism, and Islam was Jediism. I kid you not, people call themselves a Jedi. Great Britain has got some work to do. They need a life. Or is it us? Into these two radical extremes of deism and pantheism rides Jesus on a donkey colt, a man, a simple man 
who just claimed that the Father and he are one in his high prayer in John 17. The Father and I are one. A man who stills the waves and raises the dead. A man who cures the lepers and hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. That man, the man riding on the back of the donkey as the Pharisees say to each other, as the crowds are singing out Hosanna and the Pharisees are standing over there in their group and they're saying, that's it, that's it. Look at this. The whole world is chasing after him. There's nothing we can do about it now. And so they had their plan. Kill him. That's the God of the Bible. A relational God. The God of Jesus that most of us today don't believe in. We believe in the Enlightenment God, mostly deism, and not the God of the Bible, who is a relationship. That person, Jesus, who called his father, Abba, Dad. This is the God of the Bible. Particularly just to drop in on it, Psalm 42 And by the way, Psalm 42 and 43 are supposed to be the same, and they answer each other. It's two parts of the same psalm. Psalm 42, just dropping in on one verse, verse 10 out of Psalm 42. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning, oppressed by the foe? Now, you see, if we had written this, and you could probably have the deist write it, and you could have the pantheist write it. But if we were writing this today, we would say, I will say to that God who used to be my rock, why have you forgotten me? Well, I'm going to forget you. I don't believe in you anymore. As though us saying I don't believe in you actually makes God disappear. It's a moot point. The God of Jesus is not like our deist or pantheist God. The Hebrew God is our God. The Lord is one. It is like the prayer of a miserable troubled old Job there in Job 13 where he says though he slay me still I will praise him that's the Hebrew God though my life is in the toilet I have no one else to turn to because I am in relationship with God our God I turn to God I can curse God I can complain to God. I can yell at God, but I can never, ever leave God. He is my God. That's the God of the Bible. This is the God that Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross this Good Friday, cries out, what? Not like, well, this is a fine pickle you got me into. I thought I was going to become emperor and king and kick the Romans' rear, and this is all going to turn out awesome. We were going to become top nation. Now I'm sitting here nailed to a cross. Well, forget you, God. Does he say that? No. My God. My God. Our God. The Lord is one. My God. Why have you forsaken me? That's the right prayer of the God of the Bible. You see, this is the real God. This is the God we have to get back to believing in. This is the God of your prayers. This is the God of every mother and father at 3 o'clock in the morning with a sick child with a fever. This is the prayer of every dad trying to teach a 15-year-old how to drive. This is the prayer of you sitting at the end of the bed of your parent 
who can no longer speak and can barely breathe. That's the real God. It's not the deist, it's not the pantheist God. The deist and the pantheist at this point have no prayer, when, have, no, have not a prayer at all when it comes to pain and the need for justice in life. The deist instantly becomes an atheist because God was a science project. And the pantheist is only left with some existential angst akin to something like Bertrand Russell two, generation ago, two generations ago where he says, when a man dies, he rots. He just enters the great fertilizer plan. You're all walking around in borrowed suits. Brothers and sisters, we do not recite the Apostles' Creed out of duty or dogma or something dry religious duty. We recite the Creed together because He is our God, the one God, the God of Jesus, who was with God and is God, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried and descended to the dead. And on the third day, he rose again, ascended into heaven, where he's supposed to be, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Justice will reign with this God. If you need further work, you'll want to write this down. If you want further study about this enlightenment and the God that we believe in that is so wrong, I would invite you to look up on Google the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. Lisbon, as in Lisbon, Portugal. We don't hear about it much, but at that point in Western history, with the Lisbon earthquake of 1755, no longer did Westerners in Europe and so forth, uh, they were fully into the deist God, and no longer did they believe that God would ever destroy evil. To this day, you can pick up any philosophy book in any college or any high school, and you will not find God listed as one of the, of the, of the destinies of the, of the human race where justice is taken care of. That's just a little extra thing I'm throwing at you. What do we do with this this week? We walk the week, everyone. We walk the week. Here it is, the first day of the week, and Jesus is king. He's riding in. All the hopes of the nation are, are on him. He immediately goes in and clears the temple. Cast out the money changers. You've taken my father's house and turned it into a den of thieves. Well, that upsets the money changers and the people who are making profits off the whole thing. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, Herod, all the rest of them. Monday, Tuesday, part of Wednesday, he is arguing with the Pharisees and the leaders. They are trying to pin him down. Who are you? Who are you, Jesus Christ superstar? Who do you think you are? Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday, the day that they slaughter the lamb for the Passover meal, Yom Kippur. The disciples and Jesus prepare for the Last Supper that Thursday night, which we'll celebrate as Monday, Thursday here. Monday means mandate, Jesus' last mandate. Love one another as I have loved you. The whole world will know you are my disciples if you love one another. He gives that mandate the God of the universe, then washes their feet. Later that night, midnight or whenever, he's betrayed, arrested, put on trial. And by noon on Friday, Good Friday, he's nailed to the cross. 
actually nailed about 9 in the morning, dies somewhere around the middle of the day. Walk the week, everyone. Have a devotion every day. Read the end of any gospel you wish. We've been reading Luke. You can read the end of Luke. Read it for yourself. Walk through it day by day. Live it out. Tell it to your children. Write it on the doorpost. Put it on the back of your hand. Put it on the frontal of your, of your temples. Live this week. And when Easter comes, actually when Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter all come, and that holy Sabbath as God lies in the tomb. When Easter comes, you'll be excited. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus rises. And because he is God, he says this in John chapter 10. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. God doesn't raise Jesus. Jesus, as God, raises Jesus. What kind of man has the power to take this up? Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray I haven't just confused everyone to their wit's end. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of a bunch of academic isms, we can actually see that you are a loving God, that we are in relationship with you, that we can cry out to you any moment, anywhere from the simplest thing to hanging on a cross. And you are our God, the God who went to the cross for us, the cruciform God. And so, Lord, I pray that we lean into this week, that we live it hour by hour and day by day, waiting to celebrate once again the celebration of the death of death and eternal life and kingdom come. May this be our next seven days as a church family and each one of us and in our homes. In the name of Christ, amen.